0: This program is sponsored by Blazing Grace Ministries. This radio program is PG-13. Parents strongly caution some material may be inappropriate for children under the age of 13. Jesus' mission was to comfort those who mourn, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, and open prison doors for those who are bound. For those who want more than status quo Christianity has to offer, Blazing Grace Radio begins now. And here is your host, Mike Janung.
1: Hey, Mike Janung here, and welcome back to Blazing Grace Radio. And so let's jump right in. The National Center on Sexual Exploitation is based in Washington, D.C. They're involved in the battle against all forms of sexual abuse and exploitation, including pornography, sex buying, sexual addiction and compulsivity, objectification, sexual violence, male sexual exploitation, violence against women, sexting, child sexual abuse and online grooming. So. The whole package, which is all connected together, they have an expansive grassroots network. They have a research institute, an embedded litigation law firm, training team, and global coalition that is paired with public policy and corporate advocacy tactics. So I have with me today Lisa Thompson. She is the vice president and director of their research institute. Prior to joining them, she worked with World Hope International as their director of anti-trafficking. Lisa oversaw sex trafficking recovery programs in Cambodia, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. Lisa speaks and trains on sexual exploitation topics and has served for more than 12 years as the liaison for the abolition of sexual trafficking trafficking for the Salvation Army USA National Headquarters. Lisa, welcome to the program.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure.
1: So I'd like to begin hearing what some of your experiences were when you were involved with World Hope.
2: Yeah, well, um, that was a wonderful opportunity where I was the you know director for anti-trafficking for an organization that did, does relief and development Work around the world, and they had some very established anti trafficking programs that they had. They were, World Hope was really one of the organizations that was at the forefront of developing responses to provide aftercare for survivors of sex trafficking in various parts of the world. Um, And um, I'd happened to have a relationship with the woman who founded the organization. And they had, you know, I just was so impressed by all the work that they did. And eventually, um, after a few years of my work, um, I got the opportunity to join them and to be the director of their programs. And I just want to be clear that I was inheriting wonderful programs to administer. And, uh, yeah, so I got to work with a great team of people in Sierra Leone, um, in Cambodia, where we were, you know, providing aftercare services to, uh, women and girls who'd experienced sex trafficking in those countries, and and while I was with them, we were working on standing up a, a program in Liberia, and uh, we also had a little bit of work going on in Azerbaijan. Mm. So, but it was it was a great experience. So I should be clear, I wasn't doing the day to day, the really um, difficult work of providing the care. Uh, you know, we had trained um, psychologists. Uh, who oversaw that work, and then we had in-country staff who had been highly trained, who were working to you know provide day-to-day care for the individuals that were in those programs. And uh, but it was a real privilege to work with them, and wonderful to be a part of that that work. So uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it.
1: <laughs> so were they going into brothels, or how are they rescuing people in those places?
2: In those situations, um, which one of the things I thought was very phenomenal was absolutely phenomenal about World Hope's work in Sierra Leone in particular, was they had established what were what they called village parent groups. These were groups where they they uh, World Hope representatives had gone in with you know trained people and trained the local community about what to look for in terms of you know how to identify human trafficking whether it be labor trafficking or sex trafficking and that created a whole uh, created a network of people who were informed and knew what to be on the lookout for and so they had done this in multiple villages throughout Sierra Leone and so therefore when something fishy was going on when something seemed out of you know out of seemed wrong they, they knew what to call it they knew what it was and they knew who to contact uh, you know, whether it be their local police or some other authority, or they could reach out to World Hope leaders who led the village parent group teams and, um, you know, get, get the case reported and get action taken. So World Hope was not doing Bothell raids, uh, but they would get referrals from, um, you know, the authorities, from the police. But they, those police would, you know, be, would sometimes be fed information through the village parent groups. Um, so that's that's uh, um, how it worked at least some of the time.
1: Hmm. <clears throat> okay, let's move into your current role with National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Can you tell us a bit more about what they do and what your role is there?
2: Yes. So you gave a really great intro about what we do. We do really uh, work hard to try to address the full spectrum of sexual abuse and exploita- exploitation issues and show how they oftentimes they interconnect and, and fuel and feed one another. Um, so it means we have a pretty big mission to try to end all sexual abuse and exploitation, which can be feel pretty overwhelming some days. But we do have some core issues that we focus in on a lot. Um, one of them is what we'll be talking about later today, the issue of pornography. Um, But we also do work on combating, like, demand for paid sex, which fuels so much of the exploitation going on around the world and fuels sex trafficking. We work on sex trafficking-related issues and um, issues related to sexual objectification, sexual assault, and so on and so forth. Uh, But the ways that we do that, um, as you mentioned in your um, intro... One of the important aspects of our work is a law center where we bring litigation against typically mainstream companies, but sometimes against companies that you know have their models built um, on sexual exploitation, say like Pornhub, for instance. So we will bring lawsuits against various entities uh, for their role in facilitating sexual abuse and exploitation. Um, And on behalf of, you know, victims who have had, or survivors who've had, you know, terrible experiences of, um, you know, say for instance, um, you know, sexually explicit images being non-consensually distributed on a social media platform uh, or uploaded to a huge pornography platform, you know, that kind of stuff is so traumatizing and it's something that they, these companies should be held liable for. So our law center works on behalf of survivors of those types of experiences to bring litigation against these companies. And we're involved in several different lawsuits right now with various other law firms who are part, who we're co counsel with, uh, presenting these, uh, representing these um, survivors and bringing their claims uh, forward in the court so we're very excited about the law center it's you know an equalizer because <laughs> so much of the time you know we're talking about individuals who you know today don't have the capacity or the resources to go up against some of the biggest corporations in the world and so that there's a place that they can turn to to get this kind of legal support is is just really incredible and it's also important because it's helping to create new legal uh, framework, a new legal uh, precedence within our, you know, the jurisprudence of uh, of our country. So we're we're very excited that we have the law center. And that it can play such an vital role in helping to combat sexual exploitation on a mass scale by holding these corporations accountable. Uh, we also do a lot of work in the policy realm, so legislative efforts both at the state and federal level to off, you know, to seeking to improve um, the the legal, you know, the lay of the land so that our laws are better and better protect um, the vulnerable uh, from being exploited in these ways. And we do a lot around corporate advocacy. It's just, um, I'd say if there's anything that we're really known for, it's our work with corporations to particularly big, um, powerful tech entities that you know, provide interactive platforms where people are online engaging with each other and where, unfortunately, a whole lot of sexual abuse and exploitation can occur either like through online grooming, through um, distribution of pornographic materials online that then anybody can see. So um, through our work, we're trying to, um, you know, just hold them accountable um, make them think about how you know the damage that their that their carte blanche sort of laissez-faire attitude has has been, and really we're seeing a tremendous change uh, in their in within the tech world since we've started doing this work. A lot more of them are taking these issues seriously now, are implementing the things that we ask for, and I think over time we'll we'll definitely I, I know we're going to see the impact from this, but it's going to. It's, uh, you know, they've, unfortunately, they've been able to get away with this for years for, you know, not taking, um, you know, not prioritizing the, the welfare of their users, particularly of children who might be using these platforms. And so with this, with all the effort we're putting into this and helping them to think about defaulting to safety and just, you know, make baking in safety into their, their product rollouts. Hopefully, um, in the future, uh, the problems that we face today will be, um, you know, much more – would know, be mitigated.
1: Hmm. Well, I love it. I love the work you're doing. And so you brought up Pornhub. They're the big fish on the table. And talk about what your engagement with that company has been about.
2: Yeah, well, I probably shouldn't go into <laughs> too much detail about anything that were uh, that would be litigation-oriented. But I, I can just say – explain, you know, what the company is and um, what they're notorious for. So the company, as we know it, um, most people would say it was founded in about 2007. And you can think of it as a a YouTube-style platform where people could upload content, videos, you know, anybody from around the world could upload material and instead of it being, you know, cat videos or something like that, it's pornography. And this became one of the world's um, largest pornography sites and it they for de- for more than a decade had virtually zero any zero um, age verification of who was be, who was in the content that was depicted they didn't verify who the users were that were uploading content and so lots of abusive material was uploaded to the platform that's one pro- one set of problems and just the second problem is that it became really a mainstream site and it really inter- you know it took it was one of several sites though that that took pornography from being something that you know you might have a, a video cassette that you, that you rented at, at a store, or maybe you were looking at some small forums online, but, but these tube sites like Pornhub really revolutionized the way people access pornography, and it made it so easy to access it. So it became a major part of, tragically, the, the sex education of America's children because a lot of parents didn't have adequate knowledge about the dangers of them being exposed while they're online. A lot of parents have, you know, pretty lax approach to their children's online experiences, and they might not have. And plus, even if they don't have a lax approach, it can be so hard to keep this stuff from becoming to children, you know, from children being exposed to this kind of material because of what other children see, what their classmates might see at school and show them at school or at, you know, some party or, you know, playing a sport, you know, if they're on a sports team. There's so many ways that other children can introduce children to this kind of material. That's that's a huge problem. Um, and then the just their online experiences in general, if, you know, you, there's so many things that parents have to go through, hoops, to try to, filter this, filter that, this app, this application, this thing, it, it's its almost like it could be a full-time job trying to navigate um, multiple devices, multiple platforms, multiple apps, and trying to set up protections for households. It's just really terrible. And so, you know, now I think a lot of parents are getting more savvy to all this, but unfortunately, we've had pretty much a decade or more where there was a generation that were kind of the guinea pigs. They, they just were brought up without parents being um, really alert um, and cognizant of how dangerous online environments were and what their kids were absorbing. I can't tell you how many times I've read news stories or news reports about how parents think, Oh, not my kid. You know, my kid's not going to look at that or that won't happen. And it's really, it's not about that person's child. It's about the environment that they're in. And, and you know, I just can't believe... You wouldn't take your child and set them in a, uh, you know, some sort of sex store where there's all these videos and whatever for sale. Nobody in their right mind would do that. But yet we give them a phone or we put them in front of a computer and say, go have, you know, have fun online. And you're basically essentially doing the same thing because... All that content is there. It's just a few clicks away. And uh, tragically, even when they're not looking for it, they stumble into it. And it really can prove life altering for these children. It can forever change, um, you know, what the the direction of their lives. So it's, it's really important. And I hope I think today more and more parents are realizing this, waking up to this and trying to be responsive, but it's it's still really hard. And hopefully what we're doing at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, our goal is to make one of our goals is to, you know, make it so that we that we don't have to all be, you know, hypervigilant all the time that this is just a culture. We want to create a cultural norm where um, this is just, you know, we're, we don't expect this kind of co- our children to see this, and everybody's going to be on this on board, um, trying to prevent it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, <clears throat> what we see here is the people who come to us for help. The average age that a man often got hooked first exposure to porn was age eight. So wow. we have the same message that do you do is that. Um, And it's unfortunate, but we tell parents if your kid is 8 and you haven't had the sex talk, it's probably too late. Right. And what Mm -hmm. we also see is that uh, more than three-quarters of first exposure to pornography happens at home. And exactly what you said, a lot of parents just let kids have wide-open access to a smartphone, which is insane. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just, just in the last month... Um, there was a really compelling story that came out, um, a woman who was over in the UK, and she's in theater productions, and she's engaging with, I guess, youth theater, so she's you know, performing before youth all across England, and she said she's connected with more than 10,000 young people there, and she was asking them about their exposure to pornography, you know, and she's talk, telling in this article about how you know she remembers the six-year-old who told her about her exposure, and she's she's using quotes from what some of the kids say. It said, and you know one of the ones that really stood out to me was a quote from a child who said, "If you put a phone in a child's hand, you are putting porn in a child's hand," mm-hmm. and it's just so true, <laughs> and I I wish I wish everybody realized it. Um but they don't and and unfortunately, you know, more and more these you know, children are gonna be exposed. I, I hope that, you know, like what you're through what you're doing, what we're doing, that there'll be more awareness and oh with time we can stop this. But for now we're still in the in the midst of a heated fight to, to stop this from happening. Mm.
1: On your website you have a blog post, a recent one, called The Prevalence of Cartoon Pornography exposure among young children. Talk about that one.
2: Yeah, um, I haven't looked at that for a while, so I'll try to remember. Um, but there, this is another really insidious example of how the pornography industry tries to draw children in. So there will be pornography that's made of popular cartoon characters. You know, say, for instance, Elsa, uh, who I know is wildly popular, Um, You know, cartoon and some of the the movies, the popular movies that are out now. I think the Frozen franchise. Um, But you know, so your child might innocently type in something about Elsa, and maybe a pornography offering will come up. Or if if some kid has you know maybe is showing them pornography on you know on a pornography platform. And they, maybe they type in something like cartoons or else or whatever. They're gonna they're gonna get returns, and that's gonna you know that's interesting to children. Cartoons appeal to children. So uh, yes, there was a, a study that came out that was looking very much into the how prevalent this was, and I I think it's just another you know flaming example of how notorious and insidious pornographers are they really are intentional about wanting to get people using pornography young because the younger they, they use it, the more they're going to continue to use it. Um, and we know that the younger that they start using it, uh, the more likely they're going to digress into all kinds of material. And, and you know, we, like for instance, there's research that shows that the younger a person has been exposed to pornography, the more likely they are to become consumers of child sexual abuse material.
0: Mm.
2: So, um, you know, delaying exposure is really important then, you know, because the brain is so young, it's so immature, it's so undeveloped, it doesn't have, the breaking system isn't developed, and you put these very powerful images in a young mind, and you're you're imprinting it, right? Uh, so it's important that that we all work together as a society to try to delay, delay, delay those exposures, that first exposure. Because the more the older they are, the more resilient they'll be. The more you know, the the, the higher the likelihood they'll be able to um, get out of it if they get sucked into it. Mm. But the younger that exposure starts, the harder that that is.
1: Yeah. I agree we have people who come to us for help, and they've been addicted, and they're in their forties fifties sixties, and seventies so mm. as you said, um, uh, it always starts in childhood i never I don't, it's very extremely rare to hear somebody who got hooked when they were a forty or fifty year old
0: Hmm.
1: so let's talk about your dirty dozen list what's that about?
2: Well, the dirty dozen list is one of the things we're probably uh, best known for the dirty dozen list is where we name 12 companies entities usually they're a company not always sometimes it might be a government agency or even uh, a state uh, government or something but it's an entity that we see as having a large amount of culpability in terms of normalizing or profiting, facilitating from sexual exploitation in some way. And so this is really like part of our, it's its within our corporate advocacy uh, approach. It's a way of shining a spotlight on these corporations so that people become aware of their role in fueling these problems the ways in which they, they do this and how they often are doing it with, you know, they completely know uh, it's not, they're not oblivious to these issues. Now sometimes maybe they are, which is even sadder. It's like, what, you, you own this company, you run this product, it's flowing out, it's out there doing all this stuff and you have no clue what's happening on your own software, your own program that you created. I mean, that, that that's scary too. So, In either case, whether they know or don't know, we're trying to shine a light on those problems and then create opportunities for the public to weigh in so that we can create public pressure to hold those corporations accountable Mm. so that they take action, so that they change their policies and, you know, that they, they consider these issues and, you know, step up to the plate and take responsibility and, you know, become responsible social actors. So that's what the dirty dust list is about it's about shining that spotlight but not only just shining the spotlight it really we really want to empower the average person to have a voice because we know how hard it is like you know here who are we we're just little people out here you know doing our thing how, we i know how it feels i'm just an average person and you're talking about corporations that you know, are more powerful than some governments, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're incredibly powerful. They have huge, monstrous budgets. They have thousands and thousands of people working for them. Well, Lisa, and we're out sure. of time.
1: Friends, um, we'll be continuing this conversation with Lisa next week, so I encourage you to tune in. And thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.
0: Do you want to be free? Email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call the office at 719-888-5144. This program was sponsored by Blazing Grace Ministries.